Good afternoon and welcome to this Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative at the University of Chicago Medicine. My name is Dr. Dorian Miller. I'm your doctor on call, and we are interested in hearing your questions and comments. And so this is a live show. We've got two great guests that are going to be with us today. And so please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. Now, our topic for today is returning to school, and we're going to talk a little bit about immunizations, but we're also going to talk about it within the face of what we've been dealing with in this country over the past seven to eight months, and that's COVID-19. We know that, at least for Chicago public schools, that we will continue remote learning, but we also know that within the Chicago area, there are going to be some districts that return to school are going to do a combination of face-to-face learning as well as remote learning. We also know that school immunizations are very, very important. And even though outside today it is an absolutely gorgeous, sunny, beautiful Chicago day and it feels like it's still summertime, come Tuesday, Chicago Public Schools will be going back to schools. And actually for some school districts that are in the Chicago area, they've already started. So let's talk a little bit about why school immunizations are important and not just the issue of immunizations for children but for adults as well. My guests today are Dr. Daniel Johnson, who's a professor of pediatrics, and he's also the chief of the section of academic pediatrics, as well as a member of the section of pediatric infectious disease at UChicago Medicine. Good afternoon, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Happy to be here. Thank you. I also have on the line Dr. Kathleen Mullane, who is part of the section of infectious diseases and global health and a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago Medicine. And Dr. Mullane is an adult physician. Nice to see you, Dr. Mullane. So glad that you Thank could join you us today. Having- Thank you for having me. Thanks. So we're going to get started, and I'm going to get started with you, Dr. Johnson, because the first part of our focus is going to be on the issue of ch- on children. And the question is, if children are healthy, why do they even need immunizations or vaccinations in the first place? Well, that's a great question. And, of course, a big part of the reason why they are healthy is because they did get their immunizations. Their immunizations are directed against diseases that cause very serious harm to children and, in fact, can even cause serious harm to adults. And vaccines work. They protect us against all kinds of diseases. I can remember during my training that two new vaccines came out and they dramatically changed the diseases that children were coming into the hospital. In fact, what they did was they all but eliminated those diseases. So we just didn't see them anymore. And that's been true time and time again with immunizations that children receive. You know, you talk about the importance of diseases, and I think oftentimes our listeners may forget that at one point when we didn't have these immunizations available, that things like polio and other things were actually fairly common. Is that right? Absolutely. And remember, polio in the 1950s, it was causing waves of paralysis, all gone because of the polio vaccine. Tetanus, you know, used to be you got a cut, you had to worry for your life. Uh, because that could introduce tetanus into your wound, all but a gone concern because tetanus is such an effective vaccine. And I could just go on, but there's so many situations where children's lives have been saved, children have stayed healthy, and it's because of 
vaccination. This leads me to my next question, and that is, given that so many of the schools are going to be closed and children are going to be uh, involved in remote learning, why do children still need immunizations if they're not going to really be coming into contact with other children? Yeah, another great question. And the reason is quite simple, is that it's not just children who lead to the transmission of illness. As COVID has shown ever so clearly, children can get diseases from adults. Adults give diseases to each other. Uh, And childhood vaccines not only protect children during childhood, but they also protect them into adulthood. So uh, that is a big piece of this. No one lives completely alone in our world, or very few people do, maybe I should say. Uh, And so uh, they need that protection, whether they're around other children or they're just around their families. Very important point in point, Dr. Johnson. Should children still get uh, vaccinations if they've been infected with COVID-19? Oh, sure, because uh, after all, Right now, we don't even have a vaccine for COVID-19. And until we do, we won't be able to completely answer the question as to whether or not there will be an advantage of getting the COVID vaccine when it, if and when it comes out for someone who's had COVID before. But the little that we know right now about the duration of protection against COVID-19, we would suggest that it, when the vaccine comes out that everybody get it because it will reinforce the protection that someone has. But I'll tell you, it's especially important right now to get immunizations because you don't want to get a disease that might be confused with COVID-19. And immunizations can prevent that from happening for some illnesses. For example, the flu vaccine. It is vital that all of us get flu vaccine this year. It's always been important, but even more so now with COVID-19, because COVID-19 looks a lot like flu, and flu looks a lot like COVID-19. And so by getting the, the vaccine, you will lower your anxiety, lower your concern, because your likelihood then of getting the flu goes down. Your likelihood of getting serious flu goes down dramatically. So it's really important to get that flu vaccine. Mm, very important points that I hope that our, our listeners are, are paying attention to, because even though I take care of adults and we've had flu vaccine available in my practice for about a week or so, I still have people that are very concerned about getting immunizations. And so one of the things that I tell my patients ask me and they say what's the harm of maybe you know spacing out vaccinations or separating them or maybe i'll get one now or one later and i'm talking about not just flu vaccine but also for some of my patients they should be vaccinated against pneumococcal pneumonia they should be vaccinated uh, for shingles and other uh, illnesses and so dr malane i'm going to bring you in here for just a moment to ask that question is that what's the harm in terms of spacing out or even delaying vaccinations So from the studies that we do looking at vaccinations and efficacy of the vaccinations, we do look at those issues. How long should it be um, to give us the best response? And so ahead of time, when your doctor reminds you or tells you that you are up for a vaccine, it's because we know that's the time that it's the best to get it and you're going to have the best response. And it is concerning with COVID, we know that our patients are not coming to see us in clinic. We're doing Zoom visits, et cetera. And so 
we're very worried that many of our vaccines are going to be withheld for prolonged periods of time. And it's our job as docs to make sure that we are watching out for our patients to make sure they're up to date on vaccines. We know with the shingles vaccine, in fact, only about 3% of physicians are recommending it. It is a vaccine that people have to pay for out of pocket, and so it's hard to recommend it overall. But some of the insurance companies are now paying for it. And so we hope that people will ask their doctors and start a conversation about what vaccines they need. Really important. I know that particularly with the shingles vaccine for some of my patients, cost has been a factor. And I always tell them, you know, if you have health insurance, we can call your company to see how much of it's going to be covered by your health insurance so that we can figure out not only because it's so important to get it, but also when you can get it, if there are deductibles or other financial costs about it. I'm going to pose another question to the the two of you, which I think is also a big barrier in terms of people getting immunizations and also so how this is going to come into place when we have of immunization available for COVID-19. And that has to do with trust in the healthcare system. Sometimes my patients will say that they don't believe in vaccinating or they don't trust the information that's coming out of the healthcare system. And as we think, as I think about the numbers of people that have, particularly in the Chicago area, living in communities of color on the south and west sides that have had either complicated infections or um, some, unfortunately, who have passed away. The, the question of when this is available and people having a fear and a mistrust, what can we do in order to make some inroads in order to help people to understand that this is something that's going to be not harmful but helpful? So I'll start with you, Dr. Mullane, and then Dr. Johnson, I'll have you to jump in. So that's a very, very important issue. But can I do one shout out first to all the patients that we had with COVID at University of Chicago? Absolutely. When they volunteered to be part of the remdesivir trial, we showed that the mortality rate of our patients was far lower than any place else in the country. And it's because of our patients that that drug is probably going to be approved soon. So, yes, the south side of Chicago has patients that may be concerned about vaccines, but I think that most of our patients are willing and understanding of good medical studies and good medical knowledge overall. When we look at the studies that have been done for vaccines, we know that they're very safe. We know that there's always going to be people that have adverse reactions to any drug, and a vaccine is a drug, and so you may have an adverse reaction. Before you say, I don't want to have it, have a good conversation with your doctor about whether you need it or not. Much of the information is misinformation that's out on the website. And in fact, the doctor who brought up autism ended up in jail because all the data that he was presenting was false. And so really talk with your doctor. It is a conversation between you and your doctor, not people on the internet who you don't know. You trust your doctor, you bring your child for care. You should see him and talk to him about your concerns. Thanks, Dr. Mullane. Dr. Johnson, do you want to jump in here? We've got about a minute and a half before we go to break. Absolutely, Dr. Miller. Uh, I mean, Dr. Mullane, of course, is spot on in terms of her comments. Uh, what I'd like to add is that first, you don't need to trust the entire healthcare system. You need to find someone to trust within that system. And you can. You need to find someone you can trust with the needed expertise. And that's available, too. So make sure you ask the questions that you need to ask. 
so that way you know that the person you're talking to has knowledge uh, that they can answer your questions so that way you get the information that you need as a patient to make some decisions unfortunately the internet is like anything else you can't always trust everything that's written there so sometimes you need the help of a, of a trusty guide to take you through that and so that's what you need but i'll tell you what we really need as a society uh, is to stop the politicization of vaccination vaccines and diseases are not about politics they're about the need to keep people healthy and that's where we need to go with this process so we need to make sure that our coverage of vaccination is accurate information, just the facts, ma'am, so that that way we can make sure that people get what they need to make an informed decision. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. And we're going to pick up on that point. And also we've got a couple of callers who are on the line that we're also going to pick up after the break. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. If you're interested in talking with our guest today, please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. segment of the Community Health Focus Hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. My name is Dr. Dorian Miller. I'm your doctor on call today. And we've got two wonderful guests who are interested in taking your questions and comments. The topic for discussion today has to do with vaccinations, immunizations in the face of COVID-19. And we've got two callers that are on the line. And then after that, we'll pick up our conversation. And so, Jay, you had a question for our guest today? Thanks for taking my call. The shingle shot is in two parts. Does it matter how far apart the shots are? I mean, you you take one and then you have to wait a while to take the second one. Does it matter how far apart they are? Thank you for your question, Jay. Go ahead, Dr. Mullane. It's recommended that the doses be given about 30 days apart. That's the prime time to have it. Certainly if there's issues that come up between times, it doesn't have exactly 30 days, but as close to that as possible is what is recommended. Some okay, I got another have- question. I got another question. Hello? Yes, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, because of the um, pandemic, I wasn't able to get my second shot. Uh, actually, it was recommended three months after the first shot uh, when I received my first one. It was probably like eight months later before I got the second shot. Will the vaccination be ineffective? because there's so much distance in between the shots? No, for adults especially, remember you did have chickenpox as a child. So part of this vaccine is reminding your immune system, since we don't see chickenpox as much anymore, that you saw the virus in the past. And so this vaccine is a little bit different than many of the other vaccines because we are reminding our immune system about infection in the past. And so it should be fine that you have them separated and I'm worried about it right now. I think it's great. Great. Thanks, Dr. Mullane. Thanks for your question, Jay. We're going to move on to our next caller. Natalie is calling in and has a question. Natalie, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello to everyone. Yeah, okay, what we got to Redesivir, the the, the comparison was made between that and the shot, 
Okay, but how long has Bedezivir been around and been vetted as opposed to these shots that have only they put together? They keep saying the shot as if it's not four or five different companies, you know, coming up with their own, you know, how do we know what shot you're getting? You, you know, they're making this comparison between Bedezivir, which was given to patient one, by the way, and recovered well, which I don't understand why it didn't become the, the standard um, care for this virus. But again, how how... How are you comparing Bedezivir to this shot that, only took, that came about just over a matter of a few months? I'm, I'm not making that connection. Natalie, thanks for your question. I think the, the thing that Natalie is asking and is important for our listening audience to know is when they hear about these different medications that are used to treat COVID-19, the question of what they're used for and when. So I think that, that being able to unpack that a little bit would be helpful. Dr. Mullane, I'll start with you, and then after that, go to Dr. Johnson. Sure. Remdesivir is actually a very old drug. It was developed more than 20 years ago by a physician who has spent quite a bit of time at the University of Chicago and is head of infectious diseases down in Alabama. But the drug had much use in many different trials before it was used for COVID. And treating an infection that you have is much different than preventing. So when we look at medications for treatment, The horse is already out of the barn. The patient has the infection, and our hope is that we can mitigate the illness by treating it with an antiviral or an antibiotic. When we look at vaccines, we're looking at prevention. Now, there are more than four vaccines out there. There's many vaccines that are being evaluated for the treatment of COVID, or for the prevention, sorry, of COVID. And certainly, we will be involved in these trials as well in the near future. And so we hope that people on the on the South Side will represent the African American community as we were representative with the Remdesivir trial going forward. The goal for that is to not have to use medications in the future. The goal of that is not to have people get to the point where they end up being in the hospital ill with the infection. Now, many of the technologies that we use for vaccines now are different than the ones that were used in the past. Many times we just look at using a piece of protein from the virus or a virus that has been inactivated, so it's not infectious anymore, but your body reacts to it. We're certainly not infecting people with COVID to get them immune to the infection. And it is important that these studies go forward, just as it did showing that remdesivir was effective for this infection, so that we know that it's safe for everyone and that the durability of the vaccine is still in question. And so the trials are going to be very necessary to follow people long-term to see, does this immunity last for a long time, or is it going to be like a flu shot where we have to dose people every year with a new vaccine? Very important information. I want to pick up on something that Dr. Johnson was talking about right before we went to the break, and that is the issue of how do we look at the science or the evidence base around uh, the use of either the vaccines or the use of remdesivir and the role of how people can participate in research that can help us to know more about how these things are going to be in place. Dr. Johnson, are you able to uh, give us a little bit of information about um, why this is so important, particularly for the people that you care for on the south side of Chicago? Uh why I, I just want to make sure I understand the question, Dr. Miller. So is the question, why is it so important for patients on the south side to participate in these 
clinical trials? That's correct. Great. Well, you know, everybody is different. Uh, and when we look at medications, what we want to do, be those medications like remdesivir or a vaccine trial, it's very important to make sure that we understand how it's going to work in different kinds of people. Uh, and so we want to make sure that uh, trials uh, looking at medications include people from uh, different backgrounds. And the only way to do that then is to have them participate, to come in and uh, take that leap of faith to, to be willing to become part of a clinical trial. Now, of course, by the time uh, these medications, uh, vaccines, drugs, reach the point where they're starting in people, they've already gone through animal trials in order to make sure they're safe in that setting. And what we hope is that the information from animals transfers over to people. Most of the time it does because uh, there's a lot of thought that went into selecting the animal model. But so these trials start first with what are called phase one studies, which is a very small number of people who get tested in order to see whether or not they actually have the population as well as to measure what kind of safety is associated with the, the particular uh, drug. Then moves into phase two, which is a larger group of people, and then into phase three, which is the largest group. And at each level, what you want to try and do is have a group of individuals participating or a representative. And so, of course, when we look at these trials, we want to make sure that we have people of different race and ethnicity in them so that, that way we can be sure that as these drugs get developed, they will be effective in all of those populations. Thanks for that information, Dr. Johnson. And one of the things that I think many people have been hearing about on uh, television and on the radio is this question of what is a phase three trial. And so being able to break down exactly what happens at what phase I think is very important. I'm going to shift gears for a moment and to talk about concerns that you, Dr. Johnson, you may be hearing from parents regarding COVID-19's impact on children who are going back to school. Questions that are coming up from the, the parents that, of your patients that you see? Sure. You know, parents are quite naturally concerned about their kids. And so uh, they really fall into a few different categories. The first one is they're worried, are their kids going to get sick? And uh, the other thing they're worried about is not just what happens if their kid goes back to school, but also what happens if their child doesn't go back to school? Because if they don't get back to school, then there's loss of education. There's loss of social education. There's uh, uncertainty about uh, the parents' ability to be able to, to uh, attend to their jobs, to bring in dollars that are so vital to ensuring that their family is kept uh, safe and sound. Uh, so, you know, the good news on whether kids are going to get sick is that uh, children certainly get much less severe disease, uh, by and large, than adults do. Only a very small number of them get sicker than, the let's say, the common cold. Uh, but the uh, other thing that uh, parents are worried about is, will their child bring it home and infect others in the household? Uh, and luckily, uh, there are ways to protect kids from getting COVID, and there are ways to 
uh, reduce the chance then of children bringing it into the household. And I'm sure that we'll spend some time talking about that, even more so. Uh, but it's all the precautions that you've been hearing about. Teach your child how to wear a mask. Teach your child what it means to do physical distancing or what some people call social distancing uh, from other individuals. Teach them the importance of hand washing. Because all of those things are very effective at reducing the risk of a child giving someone else COVID or getting it themselves. Very important information, and I often think about that with, in uh, the context of a number of the patients that I care for who tend to be somewhat older adults, and so people who their mid-40s through their 80s, but oftentimes people living in households in which there are grandparents as well as parents as well as children in the household or even grandparents who are raising their grandchildren. So I think that one of the concerns is that um, the kinds of safety precautions that you just discussed, um, I think, are just very, very important. I want to underscore something else that that you, I think you said a moment ago, but I'm not sure that our, our listeners quite heard. And that is, are children really less likely to contract COVID or are they less likely to show symptoms or negative effects from COVID? Yeah, you know, we have to make sure that we talk about children not as a block zero to 18, but rather think about children between zero and about 10 years old and then talk about children 10 to 18-year-olds. So for kids who are below the age of 10, by and large, they are much less likely to spread COVID, at least that's what our data has shown to date, uh, than children above the age of 10. We don't know all the reasons why, but we're beginning to think that uh, part of it is their uh, height, uh, they're just closer to the ground, so they're less likely to spread droplets to the same uh, level uh, that uh, adults do or older children do. The second is is their ability to be able to generate droplets. Uh, young children just don't do it very well because they don't have the muscle strength, nor do they have as good breathing coordination to be able to expel things from their lungs or their mouths. Uh, after all, think about the ability of a child to cough something up uh, and you know what I'm talking about. So as a result, children below the age of 10 just don't seem to spread COVID effectively to other adults. And so that provides some degree of protection. They also don't get as sick. And even there, we're trying to understand why that is. Uh, children who are under the age of even 18, just don't seem to get anywhere near as sick with COVID-19 as do uh, uh, individuals over the age of 18. And, you know, there are a few different theories that have been put out about that, but the bottom line is is that uh, they don't seem to, to stay as ill. Now, for children above the age of 10 in terms of spreading it, well, they spread it pretty similar to adults. Again, they have a, more of a body habitus that's consistent with being adult. Their muscle strength is better. Their coordination is better. Uh, so for uh, children over the age of 10, you really need to think of them in terms of spread similar to adults. 
Thanks, Dr. Johnson. Dr. Mullane, we've got about 30 seconds before we need to go to the break, but I was wondering if you could perhaps make any comments about what we're starting to see in terms of the young adult population and spread in a number of the college campuses that are really struggling with this right now and why this we're seeing more of uh, COVID-19 amongst the, particularly the 18 to 29-year-old category. Well, it was incredible yesterday when I uh, was on a call and heard that there were 1,500 students at one Illinois university and a thousand at another who had tested positive already for COVID. And the reason is, of course, teenagers think that they're invincible. Wearing of masks is so important. And the crowding or going in groups, they've missed their friends. They haven't seen them all summer. They've been locked down for um, so long that they really want to be out and be back to normal. And unfortunately, we're not quite back to normal yet. So social distancing and masking is still incredibly important. And we have to make sure that everybody of all ages practices those new habits. Thanks, Dr. Mullane. We're coming up on a break right now. You're listening to the Community Health Focus Hour, brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative at the University of Chicago Medicine. We've still got another segment to go, and we've already gotten a couple of really great questions. And so we really want you to give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON-AM, the talk of Chicago. This hour brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine. My name is Dr. Dorian Miller. I'm the doctor on call for today. And we're interested in your call to talk with us about immunizations, vaccinations, and COVID-19 as we're getting into the start of the school season. Please give us a call at 773-591-1690. That's WVON AM, the talk of Chicago. Before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about um the issue of what does it take in order to uh, uh, both get us back to school, but also some of the challenges that are taking place around COVID. And I got a, a comment for our guest today, and it sounds as if that the risk of reopening, um, no matter how you look at it, whether or not kids are staying at home versus going to school, that there are both upsides and downsides to both. If either of you could snap your fingers and really implement an ideal plan without any of the typical political loopholes that we're going through right now, um, what what would it look like? And so, Dr. Mullane, I'll start with you, and then after that I'll go to Dr. Johnson. In an ideal world, what would we be dealing with given the way that we're facing this pandemic? May I bounce this to Dr. Johnson since he is on some of the important committees for this? And I think what he says is far more important than what I could say. Thanks, Dr. Mullane. Dr. Johnson. Well, thank you. And, you know, Dr. Mullane mentioned that there are these universities where they found 1,600, 1,000 individuals with COVID-19. But the remarkable thing is so far the contact tracing that's been done, and I think we're going to see contact tracing bear this out once it's finished, they're not actually getting it in the classroom. They're not getting it in the school. They're getting it because of the things that Dr. Moline mentioned. They're not wearing masks. They're not social distancing. They're going to parties uh, where they're coming into close proximity uh, in poorly ventilated places, uh, like a basement or, or some such thing, uh, where 
they're just uh, able to effectively spread uh, COVID from a small number of people to a much larger number. So when you think about the question you you asked, uh, if I had the opportunity, it would be first, schools should be open. Kids need to be in school. They need to learn. They need the social interaction associated with school. They need the great work that teachers do. Teachers are such amazing professionals, and giving them the opportunity to work with uh, kids is vitally important. It's not rocket science what we need to do in order to make the schools open. Everyone has to wear a mask and or a face shield. There should be social or the physical distancing that's uh, six feet apart. If you're wearing a mask, particularly for the children below the age of 10, you could probably be closer to three to six feet apart. But for the older child, the uh, child above the age of 10 going even into college, you want to try and have them at six feet apart. You want good ventilation. Open the windows. Open the doors. So that way there's good air movement. And if the uh, ventilation system allows it, incorporate as much fresh air into the ventilation system as possible. For the teachers up front, ideally like a plexiglass barrier between them and their students. But if you can't have that, have them uh, have that little bit of extra distance, 10 feet instead of 6 feet. They can wear a face shield. They don't have to wear a mask unless they're getting closer to their students. And then, of course, hand washing, very important there. Uh, and hand washing can be just part of the classroom plan. Every child should have uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizers uh, at their desk, ideally, but you can also have them uh, uh, in dispensers on the wall. And every half hour to hour, the kids are expected to wash their hands. And finally, uh, I would say one of the most important things is to have some method for screening. And the screening can be done by parents. They could fill in an app. They could fill out a form. That form is brought to school and handed in. So that way, the school knows that the parent has asked the child the question. You know, we talk a lot about asymptomatic or spread of COVID before people have symptoms, and certainly that goes on. Uh, but the one thing we know is, is that it's droplets that's the major vehicle for spreading this. And if you're not coughing or sneezing, then you're generating a lot fewer droplets than if you are. And so before people are symptomatic, they're not coughing and sneezing. And so the chance of spread is low. So we want to try and keep the individuals who are sick out of the school because they're more likely to lead to spread of COVID in a classroom setting than someone who's asymptomatic, who's wearing a mask and social distancing. So that would be my wish, is that we would have that and there would be an enforcement mechanism so that Everybody is following the rules and adhering to those plans. Thanks. Dr. Mullane, for adults, thinking about the adults that you care for, people that you see in our communities, any advice for them? Well, certainly mask wearing is important, especially in patients or people who need to be in close proximity for their workplace. If they're also taking public transportation, to try and separate yourself as much as possible. There are grocery stores and other stores have looked at putting signs on the floor, have looked at putting directions for people going up and down aisles. 
follow those and respect those and certainly respect the people that work in the grocery stores because they are frontline workers as well and at high risk for getting the infection. Wash your hands. Most stores will have wipes. Uh, As you're walking into the store, wipe off your own cart so that it's safe for you as well. And be respectful of everyone, not just thinking about oneself anymore. We have to know wearing a mask not only protects us, but it protects other people too. So we are in this together now. Thanks, Dr. Mullane. It looks like that we've got a couple of late callers that are on the line. We should be able to take at least one and perhaps two. So, Devante, you have a question for our guest today. Um, hopefully, we, if you could make it brief, we can um, get in at least the second caller. So, De- Devante, are you there? I'm talking. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say uh, for the doctor that said, you know, it, it's a better idea for children to go to school. They can raise windows and that type of thing and a great social experience, I understand, for students, they need, for young people, they need that. But what do you do in the wintertime, December and January? You can't raise the windows then because, the one, you know, it's really cold outside. So uh, how do they deal with that issue? Great question. You want kids in school. Thanks, Devante. Great, great question. Briefly, Dr. Johnson? Yeah, well, there are a couple of ways to, to approach that because you're right. This has to be weather permitting, but we certainly can turn up the heat in order to try and overcome some of that so that you can have those windows open in October and November. But I agree with the caller. December and January are going to be rough in this regard. Uh, And so uh, it could be that if we find that in December and January the weather just doesn't allow it, uh, then we have to close the windows. But we can certainly keep the doors open to the classroom. And because we'll be using masks, because we'll be uh, social distancing, that will create a very safe environment. I look forward to getting to the question of handling that problem in December and January because uh, we will have the experience of knowing what's been going on in the schools in September, October, and November. And by then, we should have a great idea as to how risky it might be to close those windows. If it turns out it's too risky to close them and have the kids in school, well, then we'll have to back off and and go to online. Thanks, Dr. Johnson. Uh, Vina has a question that I'm going to ask Dr. Mullane to cover. Vina, are you there? Uh, Hello, and and hello to your guest, Dr. I have two-part question. Number one, can you get it from your cat and dog and also airborne? Breathing the air outside, can people saying you can get it airborne and you can get it from your cat or a dog, a dog or other animals? Great. Thanks, Vina. Dr. Mullane? Okay. Thank you. I'm going to hang up and listen to the answer. Thank you. So we know that there have been cases that animals have been carrying the virus. Since it can be spread by hand, it can more than likely be spread from, from an animal. There aren't cases going backwards reported as of yet. So we know that animals who have been in family households that have had COVID have become infected. So that's where we're at right now. And the question then comes up about dog parks and things like that. Should your dog be exposed to other dogs that may be infected coming from a COVID home? It certainly is a concern and a risk, and that's why good hand washing is important. And 
going forward, we'll certainly get more information on that. But at this point, I don't think that we have it. And I'm sorry for the second part. Uh, no, that that's fine, Dr. Mullane. The question was uh, essentially being able to get it from a pet. And what you're saying is that chances are that the pets are actually getting it from us. Um, at this point, yeah. At, at oh, this point. Outside, certainly sunlight can kill the virus, but not 100%. Mm-hmm. And if you are near someone who is coughing, and they don't have a mask on, and you don't have a mask on, yes, you are at risk of getting COVID. Okay. So, again, being out in the fresh air, if you're close enough to someone, it can certainly be passed in that way. We've only got about a minute left, and we've got one more caller. And so, Tanisha, I'm going to ask you to make your uh, question brief so that we can get to the end of the show. Are you there, Tanisha? I am. Sure thing, I will do that. I just had a quick question in regards to avoiding home remedies. I've been one to always, you know, go toward, move forward towards home remedies as opposed to medication or anything like that. And I was just very curious to know why that is um, advised to be avoided. Thank you. Dr. Johnson. Yeah, well, I, I think it's at this point to be avoided because we don't know any home remedies, at least I don't know of any home remedies that have been shown to be effective uh, against COVID. There is some data to suggest that uh, higher levels of vitamin D uh, reduce your risk of having serious uh, COVID disease. So as Dr. Mullane was pointing out, some sunlight exposure is is good for the generation of of vitamin D. But you really need to be careful about the amount that you take if you're taking it in pill form. So I suggest that you talk with your physician about that. So, Dr. Moline, do you have any advice there? I think when we look at medication overall, there is a process, as you discussed, in studying whether a medicine works or not. So in those phase two trials, we say, does this medication be for the disease that we're treating? And if it doesn't, it doesn't go to the further phases. We say it's failed there. With a lot of home remedies, we don't have that information. So if you have home remedies that mitigate symptoms to make you feel better, okay. But as far as saying this is going to cure COVID or as far as saying that it's the next best thing to slice bread to treat you, We need those studies to tell us, does it work or does it not? And that's the frightening thing. We don't know the toxicities of those home remedies either, and we're not following for side effects. So all of those things are important, and that's what goes into clinical trials. Great. Dr. Mullane, thank you so much. I'd like to thank my guests today, Dr. Daniel Johnson, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Chicago Medicine, Dr. Kathleen Mullane, Professor of Medicine in the area of Infectious Disease and Global Health at the University of Chicago Medicine. And also thanks to you, our listeners, and our great callers today who asked some really important questions about COVID-19 and immunizations. I'd also like to thank our executive producer for the Community Health Focus Hour, Susan Peters, our segment producer, Natalie Watson, Titus Williams, our technical producer and as I said again to you our listeners we'll be back next week and our host will be Dr. Ed McDonald discussing the Block Hassenfeld Kasdan program that builds on University of Chicago Medicine's violence recovery program and until I'm with you again next month be well. The Community Health Focus Hour is brought to you by the Urban Health Initiative of the University of Chicago Medicine.